Scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 4. Picking up verse 1, Paul writes, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Not to the one who, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise of Abraham to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. But for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him. Who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. May God bless the reading of His Word. Now I'm going to unpack that uh, by telling you a story or giving you an illustration. How many of you joined a uh, social fraternity or sorority when you were in college? Okay. How many of you had children? that joined a uh, social fraternity or sorority in college. All right? Well, I joined a fraternity when I was at Clemson. And if you 
went through that whole process, you know how it works. For those of you who have not gone through the process, uh, it's, it's an interesting experience. And I want to tell you a little bit about that. Um, so here's, here's how it works. Like if you go off to college, usually at the beginning of the school year, before classes start, or sometimes in the spring, these fraternities and sororities will have what's called rush. And it's an opportunity for you to go around and visit these different groups. Okay, so if you're a man, you go to the fraternities. If you're a woman, you go to the sororities. And you go around and you check them out. Each of them is different in different ways. And so you go around during rush and you check out these different groups. And you get to know the, the people in each group. And you're kind of figuring out, okay, which group would I like to belong to? And so then if you narrow it down and you figure out, okay, yeah, I'd really like to belong to this fraternity, then you try to spend more time with them getting to know them. And then rush comes to an end, and then it's bid day. You get a bid. And what that means, a bid is like an invitation. So let's say I'm going around the different fraternities, getting to know the guys, and I'm kind of narrowing it down. I really want to be a part of this fraternity, so I'm getting to know the guys, and I'm expressing that interest. Well, when those guys meet to say, okay, who should we extend a bid to? They may say, Ron. And so Ron will get a bid. And so maybe they'll deliver it to my dorm room or whatever. I don't know how they do it now, but that's how they did it back then. So anyway, the, the bid would come. And basically it would be an invitation to join the group. Okay, but then I have to accept the invitation. I have to say, yes, I want to be a member of the group. I want to be a, a brother in this fraternity. And so then if I accept the bid, then I become, I don't become a member of the fraternity. I become what's called a pledge. And a pledge is someone who is part of the group, but is not fully part of the group yet. Okay, I have to kind of go through, jump through some more hoops, uh, go through some more requirements. I may even be subject to some hazing, you know, which is uh, hazing can be, you know, even doing things that are embarrassing or even dangerous. And you probably have read about people that have even died uh, going through these hazing rituals. You know, in a recent USA Today article, this is what it said. It said, every year for the past two decades, at least one young man has died in connection with fraternity hazing. Whether it's alcohol poisoning, extreme physical labor, or physical injuries, dozens of lives have been lost in the name of fraternal kinship. Yet rush continues, pledge classes carry out antics, and Greek initiations roll on. To the tune of about you know three hundred thousand members uh, this year. So you, so not everybody goes. I, actually, the fraternity I joined, we I didn't have to go through any type of uh, dangerous hazing. Thank the Lord. But what it shows is that you know these young people, college students. I mean, they want to be a part of a community. They want to have friends. They want to be in a group. And so they put up with some of these things. But I want to tell you about one specific person. His name's Colin. Colin attended the University of Connecticut. And this is what he writes about his experience. He says, uh, four years ago, during the spring semester of my freshman year at UConn, I made the decision to pledge a well-known fraternity. Then he goes on to say, I began to notice hazing practices within my fraternity on the very first night I became a part of it. On that night, brothers from the chapter gathered my pledge class in the parking lot of our on-campus house and began the first event of the pledging process. Two brothers instructed me to sit in the back seat of their car, wrap a tie around my eyes. 
They blasted loud music and subsequently slammed the gas pedal. And I remember feeling like I was on a roller coaster, only this was no amusement park ride. The brother driving sped up to what felt like 90 miles an hour and shook the steering wheel back and forth, and it sent me and the other pledge in the back seat flying. Still blindfolded, we were brought to an undisclosed location and lined up. Brothers then got directly in my face and shouted, Take your pants off now, pledge. Though I stayed idle, I heard one of my pledge brothers undo his belt buckle, only to have them yell at him for doing that and tell him to put his pants back on. Heads were swirling, we were brought back to campus and officially inducted into the new pledge class of the fraternity. After a week of pledging, I began speaking out about the hazing I was experiencing. I knew that something was very wrong with the way we were being treated. It was as if we, were, we weren't even people. Throughout my pledge process, I sat down with brothers and posed questions that most had never been asked. Why do you call yourself my brother when you don't treat me like one? What are the purposes of these hazing events? Don't these events contradict the core values of our fraternity? What seemed to me like perfectly reasonable inquiries, these questions unleashed a firestorm within my chapter. It still makes me cringe to think about the texts brothers sent me when they heard about my views. I was called an instigator, a troublemaker, and most memorably, a cancer to the organization. Well, despite what he went through, Colin was accepted into the membership of this group. He became a brother in this fraternity, and he tried to implement some change. But what's interesting about his experience is I see some parallels between Colin's experience and some of what they've experienced, some of, even maybe some of you, and Paul's experience. You know, Paul was speaking out about a practice he saw that was contrary to the way God makes people members of his family and so he was speaking out about this and he was receiving some pushback from those within the church about how someone is actually made a member of God's family and like Colin you know Paul was asking the question why do you call those people from other backgrounds that place their faith in Christ brother when you don't treat them like one more specifically Paul was getting them to think about the question, why do you treat non-Jewish Christians like pledges in a fraternity that are part of the group but not fully members? You allow non-Jewish people into the church, but why do you treat them like second-class citizens if they don't adopt your symbols and rituals? And this is the mindset that Paul addresses in the four questions he poses and answers in Romans 4. And the reason I think he really hammers this home, one, it's wrong, but also Paul was very globally minded. He knew that the gospel was for the nations. And he wanted to be very clear how someone is made right with God, how someone becomes a member of God's people. And so let's look at the first question that Paul presents and answers in verses 1 and 2. He writes, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So he's speaking specifically to Christian, Christians in Rome who were Jewish. And he takes them back to their forefather, Abraham. And he asks the question, was Abraham justified before God 
according to the flesh. He then poses a second question in verse 3, which is one that we should ask on a regular basis, I think. He writes in verse 3, For what does the Scripture say? It's a great question to ask for you and for me, and Paul poses it to this audience. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then Paul explains the difference between the two. How, how, How do you view righteousness? Do you think you can achieve it according to the flesh? Or is it by faith? And he gives this description. He says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so here's what Paul's saying. If you work a job, then you expect to get paid a certain amount of money, right? That's why you go to work. We're trying to earn some money, earn a living, pay the bills, etc. Well, Paul is stating the obvious truth that being paid to do a job is different than receiving a gift. He's saying that the righteousness that Abraham received, he received as a gift, not as a paycheck. That's the point. Was it a paycheck or was it a gift? Paul's saying, Scripture says it was a gift. And then he gives a second example with King David. He says, just as King David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. He said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. And so what he's doing is he's helping those from a Jewish background to understand that these Pillars of the faith that you look up to and connect with, Abraham and David, these men were allowed into the family of God. They became members of the people of God the same way you and I do. And the same way Gentiles do as well. We become members of God's people by faith. And to make his point further, he asks and answers two more questions in verses 9 through 12. And he deals with this issue of circumcision, this sign of the covenant, this symbol. And he describes that Abraham was declared right with God by faith before he was circumcised, which is important. He's saying, you know, I know you're really clinging to this idea of symbolism and signs, but you need to understand that Abraham was made right with God before that came into play. And the reason he did that is because he was told that he would be the father of many nations. In other words, you don't have to be from the nation of Israel to be part of the people of God. What you must do is have faith like Abraham had. You don't have to jump through any additional hoops. You don't have to go through some hazing process, do anything embarrassing or strenuous or uh, dangerous to prove you want to be right with God. You don't come into the family of God as a pledge and then move on to full membership You know, you're either in or out. That's Paul's point. You're either in or you're out. There's no middle level ground when it comes to are you in the people of God or not. There's no like junior varsity varsity. And so when you come in, you know, you're junior varsity. And if you do well enough, then you get promoted to varsity. No. Paul said there is none of that. It's either you're in or you're out. If you have faith in Jesus, then you're on the team. You're in the family. You're right with God. 
And remember, faith is being fully convinced that God is able to do what He promised. That's what faith is. It's being fully convinced that God is able to do what He promised. And it was that kind of faith that Abraham had in the promises of God that made him right with God. And it's the same kind of faith that you and I must have if we're going to be right with God as well. We must believe that God will do what He says He will do. And what does He say He'll do? Well, He says, well, uh, He will forgive your sin and He will give you eternal life through Christ. But you have to trust Him to do that. You have to have faith that He will in fact do that. And I think one reason why Paul spends so much time on this subject here is because it's so easy for us to begin to require more than faith to become full members of the people of God. Now you may say, well, Ron, I've never required someone to be circumcised to be considered a Christian. (laughs) Well, I haven't either. And that's good. You shouldn't because that would be wrong. Um, But we do other things. We kind of add on additional things where... We may say, well, yes, you need faith in Christ, but if you really want to be fully part of God's family, then you also need to do these other things as well. And in a book written by uh, Paul Tripp and Timothy Lane, uh, they share a few of these dangerous additions that we can uh, require of people. That we, we allow you to come in as a pledge. If you place your faith in Christ, you're a pledge. But then if you go through these other kind of steps, then you get full membership into the people of God. You move from JV to varsity. And here are some of the uh, dangerous requirements that we tend to uh, apply. First one is formalism. This This addition to the gospel believes that actions like church attendance, giving your money, reciting certain prayers, dressing a certain way. You know, these things are really what adds that extra oomph that gets you in and makes you a full member of the people of God. So faith in Christ, true, but also these other things. And once you have these other things combined with faith, bam, you're a full-fledged member. You get the pin and everything. Second dangerous requirement is legalism. We've talked about this one a fair amount, but legalism seeks to achieve righteousness by following God's commands through a rigid list of do's and don'ts. And the reason legalism fails is is because it sees righteousness as a paycheck instead of a gift. And it's dependent on your own effort rather than trusting in the effort of another, namely Jesus Christ. A third dangerous requirement is mysticism. Now this requirement places more importance on a special spiritual experience or feeling than true biblical faith. So this goes something like this. You know, okay, now you've placed your faith in Jesus. That's good. But if you really want to experience God, if you really want to be, you know, full of the Holy Spirit, full-fledged Christian, then you need to have this type of experience. You need to have this type of feeling. And so we can fall in the danger of 
mysticism where we overemphasize the emotional and the experiential to the detriment of faith in what the gospel says about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Because here's the thing. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know this. Feelings come and go. And God can be at work in your life even though you don't, don't feel it. Right? I mean, God is, is always at work in the lives of his people. And so just because you're not having a certain experience doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. Or that God's not working. And so what the, the danger of mysticism is, is that elevates experience to the level of faith. That you must have this experience if you're truly varsity Christian. And until you have that experience, you're a junior varsity. You're a pledge. But once you have it, we'll move you up. We'll give you the pen. We'll give you the letter jacket. So what we need, what we need to do is pursue Christ first and experiences will follow. But what this view does is it reduces the gospel to dynamic, emotional, and spiritual experiences. Now here's what I want you to think about. How do you view Christianity? I mean, what do you think makes someone a member of the people of God? What do you think they need to do? What do you think makes someone a Christian? I mean, do you find yourself adding to the gospel? Do you, maybe you're saying to yourself, Ron, yes, I know, faith in Jesus, that's true, but don't they need to have... And I'm not saying, obviously, we should seek to live a certain way as believers. But what makes you a Christian, what makes you part of the family of God, what puts you in God's people is faith in Christ. And that's it. It's faith in Jesus Christ. So don't fall into the mindset of some of those in Rome that Paul was addressing who believed that there was this kind of two-class Christianity, you know, those who were maybe from a different background than the Jewish background, if they could just adopt some of the Jewish rituals and signs, then they would be fully part of the community. Because remember what Paul said in verses 23 through 25. Listen to what he says. It was counted to him. He's talking about how Abraham, by faith, it was counted to him as righteousness. He says it was counted to him. We're not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So simply put, it's by faith in Jesus that we are made right with God. And it's by faith that we seek to live out this life that God has gifted us. There's no other hoops to jump through. There's no formulas to memorize. There's no symbols to adopt or deeds to be done. Faith in Christ is what puts you in God's family. It's all about what He has done. And I wonder, I mean, does that sound like good news to you? I mean, I think it's not a bad idea to join a fraternity sorority. And I've heard some of them have uh, thrown out the whole rush process. So they don't even do the whole pledge category anymore. I mean, they just if you want to be a part of, of them, they want you to be a part of them. They just bring you in as brothers and sisters. And that's how it is among the people of God. There are no other hoops to jump through. It's just faith in Christ puts you in the family of God. Now maybe you've... Uh, I, sort of think, I want you to think about your own life for a moment. 
Because maybe you've been going through rush, so to speak, in life. And checking out different communities, different beliefs in God. And if so, I want to encourage you, we'd love to have you join our community. I mean, we'd love to have you be a part of the family of God. We'd love to have you become a Christian. And I know God would love to extend His grace to you that you may experience His forgiveness and receive that gift of new and eternal life. And all it requires is faith. The invitation, the bid has gone out and all you need to do is receive it by faith. Faith is the promise of God. Faith in the promise of God that He makes people members of His family through the work of Jesus Christ. And so if that's the decision you'd like to make, I encourage you to do that today. Place your faith in Christ and have the assurance that you are now right with God because of what Christ has done for you. There's no hazing. There's no pledge process to prove yourself. You simply trust that God will save you because of what Jesus has done and He will guarantee your membership among His people. Let us pray. Father, we're so grateful for this truth that runs so contrary to so many things that we believe. That there is no work to be done on our, on our behalf to make us right with You. But it is only through the work of Jesus. The same faith that saved Abraham, faith in Your promise, is the same faith that saves us. Faith in Your promised One, Jesus. And I pray that you would be with those this morning who are still searching. And maybe they have been wandering around, wondering how they could be made right with you. How could they be part of your people? Lord, I pray you'd help them to see the gospel for what it is. It's good news because it's all based on what Jesus has done and not on what we do. Help us to be people of faith. And help us to walk by faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.